finding EJ Montgomery really wasn't all that difficult. EJ, it's so nice to meet you. How are you doing? Our dear friend and artist, Dewey Crumpler, from the first episode, he had given me two phone numbers to try. One was for a friend that might know how to get in touch with EJ, and the second was maybe for the care facility that she currently lived at in D.C. I tried the first, and no luck. It sounded like someone had picked up and immediately put down the phone. But the second led me to the front desk of a care facility in D.C. I told the woman at the front desk that I was looking for someone named E.J. Montgomery. Hi, my name is Babette Thomas. Um, I'm wondering if someone named E.J. Montgomery might live here. The woman said that E.J. did in fact live here, but that I would need to contact her power of attorney to get permission to speak with her and that someone from her family would be in touch. Not even a day later, I get a phone call from a DC area number from someone named Stephanie Neal. That piece right behind me there, that's a piece of EJ's. That's one of her wow. earlier work, 1952. <laughs> wow. Stephanie is EJ's best friend and caretaker. They're not family, but that doesn't really matter because Stephanie has been by EJ's side for the past 20 years. She sets up interviews for EJ, and she goes to her care facility once a week to take care of her laundry, because once, the care facility ruined all of EJ's delicate knit suits. Over the past few years, Stephanie's main project has been archiving EJ's hundreds of boxes of art, books, and all the things that she couldn't take with her moving into the care facility. Stephanie is so bubbly and vibrant whenever we talk on the phone, it is really comforting. I tell her about the project that I'm working on and she tells me that EJ would love to talk with me and that it would probably make her weak. So we set up a time to all hop on a Zoom together. I'm so happy that Stephanie, thank you so much for making this happen. Oh yeah, it's a pleasure. You know, I've got some wonderful photographs too. I would love to see some photographs. Yeah, and she'll. I haven't interacted with many older folks in my life. All of my grandparents have now died, and most of them died pretty young. At 92, EJ is probably the oldest person I've engaged with in genuine conversation beyond your typical, how are you, and how's school going? I have my list of questions ready about a dozen of them. I even ran them past my editors. I want to know everything about her. This person who did all of these incredible things that I've been researching incessantly for months and months, that I've made a whole series about. This is a huge moment. Um, EJ, it's so nice to meet you. How are you doing? Good. I hop on the Zoom and I see her. She's wearing a beautiful polka dot top with a pearl necklace and her gray hair gathered up in a ponytail. I recognize the same features from all the photos I've looked at. And in many ways, EJ looks the same. EJ is in a common space in the care facility and there's an attendant there to set her up with an iPad. Stephanie is calling in from her house. I am so excited to speak with EJ. We say hello and introduce ourselves, but EJ actually seems a little nervous. EJ will come eventually. 
Montgomery of San Francisco Fine Arts Committee. I have a bit of a hard time hearing her. I remember from the archival clips of EJ and speaking with some of the people that have known her that she's always been quiet. And now with her Parkinson's, sometimes her voice shakes. I just wonder if the computer maybe needs to be just a little closer. I just moved. Okay. That's already better. Yes, that's so much better. I think you were a little far away. Thank you. EJ is someone who carefully thinks out what she says. And I could tell that she would have probably preferred to be in a quieter space for this interview. I can make out small bits of what she's saying. Some sentences stand out more than others. And sometimes Stephanie is able to repeat what she says. Commission. A director. Appointed. Don't worry about that. We hear the we hear the sound. It's okay. You you don't have to worry about that. We can hear you. Mm-hmm. One of the things that she talks about the most is her time with the San Francisco Arts Commission during the late 70s. And this feels important because it reminds me that she has lived so much life outside of the scope of this one period of her life that we're looking at in this podcast. In 1976, EJ was appointed to the San Francisco Arts Commission. Stephanie shows me pictures from this time, and they are absolutely stunning. Photos of EJ writing on BART and in council meetings. No, this is from the San Francisco, uh, what, Arts Commission? Yes. These are... Wow, I love that one. Oh my God. Are these not wonderful or what? Oh, those are incredible. Those are uh, commission. It says the Art Commission, City and County of San Francisco. These are her in action with different people. What'd you say, EJ? You recognize the pictures? I said with what other commissions want pictures. Look at EJ. Oh, wow. Doing her thing in San Francisco. It sounds like EJ really loved her time at the commission. She was even elected to become the chairman of her committee. I was chairman of the committee. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank In her time at the commission, EJ made art programs for Black youth in San Francisco. She wanted to make a space for kids to commune and make art. And she says that she learned a lot about human nature through this work. We were assigned various divisions Mm -hmm. of the art commission. For instance, they had festivals, things of that nature. I think in my interview brain, I still wanted to focus on this period of the late 60s and early 70s in EJ's life. So I tried to gently pivot her towards talking about that. EJ? Yes. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you in the middle of your sentence. Um, I was going to ask if you could tell me about your time at the Rainbow Sign and if you remember that. And working there with like Betty Saar and Elizabeth Catlett. 
I'd love to hear well, something about that. To which EJ replies, I can tell you about it, but it has nothing to do with the archery. In case you didn't catch that, she said, sure, but that has nothing to do with the Arts Commission. It really makes me laugh. It not only tells me that EJ can fully hear everything that I'm saying and that our miscommunication is a matter of technology, but it also shows me how funny and witty she is. My life's history and projects. Mm. I made black art my life's history and project, EJ tells me. We stay with EJ on the call for about an hour and a half. Eventually, Stephanie hops off the Zoom, and it's just me and my producer, Maisa, with EJ. There's a lot of background noise. Later in the interview, the TV starts blaring in the background. We are really struggling with the quality of the audio and being able to make out what EJ's saying. The staff at the facility walks over and tells us that it's time for dinner. So we say goodbye and end the call on EJ's end. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. Um, I'm going to have to end, end this just because I know dinner's coming up soon. No uh, worries. And I'm sorry for the sound. I thought I had lowered it and then I went off. So I'm sorry if it, for the feedback. Yeah. Oh, it's no worries. Thank you so much, EJ. I love talking with you. Thank you so much. I hope we get to talk again. Maisa and I debrief. I'm not going to lie to you. That was maybe one of the hardest interviews I've ever done. Basically, as a radio producer, you're always trying to micromanage. Make sure there's no background noise. Make sure the interviewee is speaking into the mic correctly. In some ways, the pandemic has made our jobs as producers both easier and harder. We don't have to travel to go speak to someone in person. But we also have less control over the environment where these interviews take place. And with EJ, we have someone who doesn't have complete control over the situation that she's in. And Stephanie isn't in the room to advocate for her. Stephanie actually hops back on the call, back from whatever previous engagement she had. She tells us that EJ wasn't in the best mood today. Being in the care facility has been hard for her which I could tell by the way that she was glaring at the staff person at the facility when he wouldn't completely turn off the TV. She says that EJ didn't like her outfit today. It's not the one that she wanted to wear for the interview, which I can completely relate to. A slightly off outfit can also completely ruin my day. Stephanie says that EJ misses having her own space, but that this facility ultimately saved her life. It's the type of around-the-clock care that she needs. Stephanie is also an amazing storyteller, and she paints a picture of EJ's life that really helps me understand who she is as a person, beyond what I've learned from her in the archive. She tells us that EJ is really a lady's lady. She loves her clothes, her food, her art, and she still talks about some of her long-lost loves. She's a woman of the world. She misses being able to go on trips on her own. She's often convincing her friends to pick her up and take her to the beach. 
One time, EJ was a bit confused about where she was. She swore she was at the beach, so she called Stephanie. Stephanie told her to look at the art in the room around her to try to figure out where she was. EJ began describing her own art, hanging up in frames on the wall. Turns out that she had actually been in her own room at the care facility the whole time. After her time in San Francisco, EJ eventually moved to DC to work for the State Department to send black artists overseas. She's traveled to a number of countries in Africa. She eventually gets divorced from her husband. She doesn't have kids and she never stops opening doors for black artists. Stephanie and I agree to do another Zoom. This time she'll be in the room with EJ. In our last episode, we begged the question, where will our black art futures exist? And how can we include the black histories of this land into these spaces? I wanted to use the rest of this episode to share a couple case studies, concrete examples, literally concrete, because both of these stories involve architects who are building these types of spaces in the Bay right now. One of my favorite podcasts is a show called Right Now-ish, hosted by Pendarvis Harshaw. Penn is an arts and culture reporter and writer who interviews artists in the Bay. He is such a powerhouse of knowledge of Black arts history and culture in the Bay. And he and his team are so incredible at finding stories about exceptional artists and their work. We're going to queue up a couple episodes of Right Now-ish for you, right now exploring these ideas of what all really goes into building physical black art spaces. This first story is about Tajay Massey. He's a rapper from the legendary Hieroglyphics crew, as well as an artist and architect. He's one of the founders of Hiro Day, one of the most popular music festivals in the Bay. And now he's looking into what it means to be thinking about the intersections of culture and the built environment. Let's get into it. Mic check, check one, check two. Are we here? All right, we're here right now. Ish. What's popping? What's cracking? What's happening? What's shaking? What is it? Welcome to Right Nowish. I'm your host, Pendarvis Harshaw. I'm going to ask you to take a second. Observe the place you're in, wherever you're at. Now, ask yourself, what kind of culture is created in that environment? That's what we're talking about today. Yo, what's up? This is Tajay of the Mighty Souls of Mischief crew. I'm chilling with my man. In the opening lines of Souls of Mischief classic 1993 song, 93 Till Infinity, Tajay Massey tells us about where they're making music and what it's like to be there. We're hailing from East Oakland, California, and um, sometimes it gets a little hectic out there. But right now, you know, we go up you and how we just chill. It's hectic, but they're chilling. And this is where the group's art comes from. Since then, Tajay, Souls of Mischief, and the rest of the Hyro crew have performed around the world. They've also created Oakland's annual hip-hop festival, Hyro Day. Which in normal times happen every Labor Day. Since the first one, back in 2012, I've been to just about every event. There's always people in their flyest fashion and coolest kicks going from stage to stage as hip-hop artists of all backgrounds perform. Today, we're going to chop it up with Tajay about the importance of having access to space in order to share, celebrate, and create culture. Because if you didn't know, on top of being a cold lyricist, Tajay is also an architect, so he thinks about culture and space a lot. Stay tuned 
as we chill and build. Everyone knows you as a rapper, a member of Souls of Mischief, which is part of the almighty Hyro crew, and these days you've adopted an alias, Rap Noir, under which you've put out a few projects. Plus, you've got your own label, Clear Label Media Group, and you're also an accomplished architect working for multiple firms. you got Sabi Design Build and Beaumont & Associates, where you're designing retail spaces, additions to people's houses, and a vegan ice creamery in Oakland. How in the hell do you pivot between a successful hip-hop career and the life of an architect? I think that my life has always been drawing me in this direction. You know, as a kid, I love Legos. I love the Tetris. I love packing. I love making things fit. You know, and then as you travel the world, and see all these masterful buildings. I just started to have a real affinity towards the built environment. I started looking into the possibility of going to architecture school because I, I sat and was like, well, if I had a billion dollars, what would I do? And I was like, you know what, I'd be an architect. And so I started looking at the possibilities and then I applied to Berkeley, I went to one summer program at Berkeley uh, called NARC and it helped me create my portfolio, created my portfolio and then maybe a year and a half later, I'm starting school at Berkeley. And then Berkeley was great because I was able to still go home every single day to my family while I was at, at school. We were at Berkeley at the same time, I remember. But yeah, that's dope, man. We were the only two Black students. <laughs> we were the only two Black students on the whole campus. <laughs> there were like six more. There was a couple linebackers, a couple hoopers. It's about eight of us. We, we couldn't all come together, though. They treat us like a gang. All right, so look. I'll blatantly say it, man. The reason I want to talk to you is because I figured you'd be a great person to have a conversation about culture and place. And coming to you as an artist, as an architect, what's the importance of having space for art? All the arts, I think space is extremely important for them to be able to flourish and grow. Being able to record, you have to have studio space and all that kind of stuff. It becomes very important for you to have a place, not just the time, but a place to actually be creative. You know, I grew up where there were recording studios all over. I mean, first there were no studios because nobody could afford the equipment. And then when the four track came out and these things came out, we started going over to the Onion Lab in Berkeley, where a guy named Onion would allow us to record for about $5 an hour. That is a direct progenitor, a creator of us being able to be actually in the industry, to have a demo for the world to, to hear our demo and then get us onto a larger level as far as major labels. I think that in Oakland, there, there are fewer and fewer spaces for people to be able to create here. But I think that also because of the urgency of what's going on out here and the lack of spaces, people are really sort of digging in their heels and pushing back. And so a lot of the art that is coming out is astounding because it's built out of you know they say pressure makes diamonds or whatever it's built out of that pressure okay so that pressure that comes from unequal socioeconomic circumstances is not a new thing and making art from that position isn't new either something you've talked about before is the parallels between oakland today and the bronx in the 1970s can you tell me more i feel like you know and i've been chilling with baby lou a lot you know he was physically there real quick breakbeat lou he's from the bronx He's an OG, a pioneer in the hip-hop game. He created the seminal compilation album of beats known as Ultimate Breaks and Beats. So many DJs and producers still rely on that to this day. Okay, back to it. 
I mean, he even said it like the town right now, when you see these uh, shanty towns, when you see burnt out cars, when you see graffiti, and a lot of it is protest graffiti. He's like, man, these are the exact same conditions things came out of, you know, black and brown and white kids back back in New York living under these conditions that were just saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to make this physical wasteland that I'm dwelling in a more beautiful place or I'm going to do some some sort of escapist stuff, whether it's body movement, whether it's MCing and DJing, whether it's graffiti that's going to take me to somewhere else. I, I think we're almost in the exact same position now, and I, I think some of the best works are being generated right now. And I, I mean, Oakland is probably the tip of the spear. The, the way things are going, we're not only in late gentrification, we're in late capitalism, you know, where we got guys who ha have enough money to send themselves to space. And then we have folks who don't have enough money to live somewhere besides, I mean, like literal cardboard boxes, you know, some places on, in the town look like Thunderdome. It's tough because you see people in pain around you Okay, I know how to build spaces. I know how to generate money. I, I know how to, you know, help people through my music, et cetera. How can I then make those three things converge in a way that makes life easier for the people that I see are suffering around me? And that's kind of the crossroads that I'm at now. Looking at the importance of space and being free to be yourself and express your culture, why is Hyro Day important? Hyro Day is the physical manifestation of the concept of 93 till infinity, right? We, we made a place where all of our influences, all the people we've influenced, all the homies, and all the people who have influenced us, meaning our parents to our grandparents, our kids, you know, everybody can come together and celebrate something. You know, a lot of folks that I see during Howard Day, they've had to move away, stopped and sacked. You know, uh, L.A., anywhere, it's cheaper than here. But we see them on Hyro Day, so it's like a big family reunion, too. So I, I would say Hyro Day is, it's us creating the physical manifestation and the concept that we kind of put forth in 93 Till. Showing you how we chill and showing you how Oakland chills or how the Bay Area chills. And showing you our musical influences, our cultural influences. That's dope. I hadn't thought about it in terms of the people you influenced and the people who influenced you. And I'm thinking about like who I've seen there and that wide array of talent. Like I saw Fashan there. Yeah, I got a fully loaded cartridge and thoughts to enemies. I saw Yuck Mouth. I'm still in it, still rapping and still winning. Still Queen's Delight. A little bit of everybody, man. P-Rock with Yuck Mouth, come on. Right, yeah, yeah. In 2019, we had Benny and Conway. You know, we brought Juvie to the town. Sugar free. And, you know, we got we got the unofficial mayor, Mr. Fab, there doing his thing every year. You know what I'm saying? But it's, it's yeah, our influences and those we've influenced and them all existing in the same sort of space and time at once enjoying, enjoying themselves, you know. All right. So there's that thread again about creating space so that culture can thrive. Um, on that note, I want to talk to you about that hotel you have down in Panama called Hibiscus Gardens. What's the intended purpose of this place and how does it relate to this thread of space and culture? I want it to be sort of a meditation and retreat center for people to really go out there, reset and come back inspired, not just vacay, not just do it for the gram, not just drink hella Casamigos, but actually <laughs> come back and, you know, you know, uh, be better for everybody around them, be, be more present. So that's really my goal with getting my, the space down in Panama is, is, is having a place for people to come back, recharge, not just relax, but recharge. I've traveled the entire planet as a rapper, 
you know, I also has a six foot three black man too, who might've had on some baggy jeans and some unlaced tennis shoes, hoodie. But Panama is a place where I feel like I'm embraced as a human being. I'm all the way, about six hours away from the city, but I'm out there surfing, fishing, swimming with whales, swimming with, you know, swimming with dolphins. And I was like, okay, this is magical. I would like to share this with as many people as I possibly can. Build a recording studio, build some for visual artists, build a pottery studio. My daughter is really into ceramics. She was a art major. So build a pottery studio down there and just make it a place where creation is centered or, or meditation is, is centered. I'm not looking at my as my retirement. I don't think I'll ever retire. I love design and I'll probably do that for the rest of my life. I love making music, definitely do that for the rest of my life. But it's definitely a place where I can sit down, kick my feet up and, and, and kick it. But, but still, it's close enough that I can get home and deal with town, town business when I need to deal with town business. Tajay of the Mighty High Road crew, man, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Best of luck with the music, the architecture, the culture creating, and the culture keeping. One thing that we didn't mention that we should is that Tajay is also a big supporter of Ile Omade School in East Oakland. It's an independent Afrocentric school that's been a wonderful community institution for years. Shout out to them. As you hear, Tajay has a lot going on. If you're looking to keep up with him, you can find him on Twitter and Instagram at Rap Noir. That's spelled R-A-P-N-O-I-R. Check out his tweets. He sends messages that don't exceed three words. And I got to give a big thank you to the listener who suggested we interview Tajay in the first place. Hey, I'm Liz Gettleman Galicia, and I know Tajay Massey from high school. He used to scribble all over our notebooks in class and doodle the same symbol. And that symbol is what came to be the Hyro logo. I love a good anecdote. Thank you, Elizabeth. Marisol Medina Cadena is the producer behind Right Nowish. Jessica Plachik is the editor. Our engineer is Seal Muller. Our engagement team is made up of Kiana Mogadam, Sarah Pineda, and Ashley Ng. KQED execs are Erica Aguilar, David Marcus, and Holly Kernan. I'm your host, Pendarvis Harshaw, reminding all of y'all out there to keep chilling and keep building. Right Nowish is a KQED production. That was so, so powerful. I think something that's important to say here is that if we're going to create a black art future, it is going to be an abolitionist one. There are no prisons in our black art utopia. And as we're trying to imagine better worlds, it is so important that we imagine spaces with the most vulnerable black people, incarcerated black people in mind. So next up, we're sharing an interview with Deanna Van Buren. She's an architect who is working to end mass incarceration by transforming carceral spaces like prisons and jails into restorative community spaces designed to create a more equitable society. Take it away, Penn. Mic check, check one, check two. Are we here? All right, we're here right now. Ish. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Pindarvis Harshaw, the host of Right Nowish. Today, I'm asking you to take a second and imagine what it would be like if we simply didn't build any more prisons. If we took the old prisons we do have and converted them into centers that focus on restorative justice. You know, using classes and conversations that push community building, as opposed to methods that are all about punishment. 
What if, all right, hear me out, architects design buildings to promote healing and growth? What if we just simply built society differently? That's what Deanna Van Buren is asking. Or rather, that's what she's been doing. A lot of people call me a justice architect, but I don't design prisons. I don't design jails. I don't design detention centers, and I don't even design courthouses. All right, bring us back to the start. It was 2007, Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, so it's super specific. I was at um, the Taylor Memorial Methodist Church in West Oakland uh, to celebrate, and Fania Davis and Angela Davis both spoke um, around the topic of restorative justice. And in hearing that, it was I knew in that moment that that, for me, was a real solution. Like, why aren't we doing it this way all the time? This makes absolute sense to me. It is possible to do justice differently and that we all have to kind of ask ourselves if when we're harmed, are we willing to go into dialogue with the person who might have harmed us? Are we open to a system of accountability and healing? And that moment in 2007 sort of put me on a path of thinking about how to practice differently, right? I can practice for people who look like me. I can practice for the liberation of black and brown people instead of for the wealthy and the powerful and the institutional. And I've been successful in, in building out an organization that is focused on ending mass incarceration through innovations in the built environment, using both finance and design together. Seeing that you've done work across the nation, and also in, in my backyard, in the East Bay. And so what does that look like? What are the actual projects? What is, what's the actualization of your projects looking like? Recently, we finished Restore Oakland in your neck of the woods, soon to be my neck of the woods because I'm moving. And Restore Oakland uh, is the country's first center for restorative justice and restorative economics. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to gut this building and we're going to turn it into three things. First, a restaurant that will break the racial divide in the restaurant industry by training low-wage restaurant workers to get living-wage jobs in fine dining. It does not matter if you have a criminal record or not. On the second floor, we have bright, open, airy spaces to support a constellation of activist organizations to amplify their cry of healthcare, not handcuffs, and housing is a human right. And third, the county's first dedicated space for restorative justice filled with nature, color, texture, and spaces of refuge to support the dialogues here. And that inspired another project just like it in Detroit uh, called the Love Buildings. Uh, we're doing more community organizing work uh, in LA County to create a restorative care uh, village, right? So what is that around behavioral health? Uh, we're creating a tool that's building out the entire infrastructure that we see is necessary to end mass incarceration uh, so that communities can plan their neighborhoods differently. So it's a huge range. I could keep going, but... <laughs> it's a lot. That's a lot a lot of balls in the air. I got more. I got more. <laughs> <laughs> and you're traveling even during this time, this crazy time. Yeah, because we're essential workers, right? Dismantling racism, unbuilding racism is essential work. I can't stop. I mean, we go safely, right? We're really safe. We social distance. We wear masks. But I'm not going to stay at home when there's that kind of work to be done. Well, when you put it like that, like, yeah, that's the most essential work. Duh. My bad. Okay, but how do you actually transform a space like that? Like, I'm thinking about the county jail in San Francisco that recently got shut down. How can we see it turned into something else? 
So I think, you know, the, especially with these facilities, they've done so much harm, right? They've really done harm. Like community looks at these spaces and these buildings and there's a lot of trauma there. Like we have a trauma reaction to the thing itself, right? And the energy of what happened there is still there. So they can be repurposed, costly to repurpose because they were built to hurt people, right? Punish, separate. And now you want to turn it into housing or you want to turn it into a center for equity or you want to turn it into live workspace for artists, whatever, all these ideas that come around. But there ain't no windows, right? The whole thing's chopped up with a bunch of concrete walls. You got to get rid of all of that, right? All of that's got to go. Um, and so you can do it, you know, but sometimes it's cheaper to tear the thing down and start again. And you got to engage the community in that. You got to repair the harm by engaging folks and reimagining it. So it's someplace they'd actually feel comfortable going. I mean, one initiative we have is to turn them into trade schools, welding schools. We call it the Welding Justice Project. You know, if you're going to repurpose these facilities, you have to bring restorative economics into it. How does this actually generate revenue and bring jobs into the community that are living wage and actually growth jobs? You know, you got to stack some functions here. Yeah, not just symbolic, just like actually structure for a purpose. Was it Atlanta where it was an old prison that got turned into a multi-use place? It's a jail. It hasn't been uh, repurposed yet. Uh, We are still working with the community organizers to push the mayor's office to close it down. There are about like 20 people left in there. It's 475,000 square foot jail in downtown. Used to house over 1,000 people. There are 20 folks. You need to close that thing down. And we presented four beautiful development options like demolish it rebuild new into a center for equity and freedom and wellness, right? That's what we were designing there. There's no incarceration happening there. This is exactly the kind of multi-use, multi-tenant hubs we were talking about before. And it's going to happen. It's going to happen. We're not giving up on that. What's your thoughts on the newly built prisons that are built with um, restorative justice practices in mind or are built with intelligent architecture, for lack of a better term? Yeah, I have this conversation a lot, Penn. Um, Here are my thoughts about it. I don't think you can build prettier boxes to house black and brown people built on the foundations of structurally racist system. Like, that's not where the resources need to go. Anytime you build a better looking prison or jail, you're taking resources out of the community. The investment you're putting into the building, that infrastructure is investment you're not putting into reentry, you're not putting into educational programs and services. You know, we look to these prisons we see in Europe. They're really beautiful, and but they're, to- they're built totally on a different system. They have very few people incarcerated. They have very low recidivism rates because they actually re- be, believe in repair, like that these are citizens and they're not based in slavery, right? They didn't come from a system of enslavement. Our system is. So the prettier box ain't going to do it. Design is not going to solve the problem. Do you feel like 2020 has aided the momentum toward rethinking the function and purpose of prisons? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. With COVID, a lot of folks are getting released. People are changing policies really fast. And it's amazing. They're letting all these people out, but then there's nowhere for them to go, right? We haven't built the housing, right? When we talk about investments, restorative reinvestments in community, where's the housing? Where's the sober living facilities? Where are the behavioral health and psychiatric health centers we need? Where are the schools and education? Where are the jobs and job training and workforce development opportunities, right? Where's all that stuff? That's where the money should be flowing. 
And look, and the price point is better. For one jail, we can build 30 restorative justice centers. That is a better use of your tax dollars. I want to build. How does it feel to have the success you've had with having published TED Talks, being in the New York Times, being awarded? How does success feel? Had no one paid attention, I would have kept doing it. You know, there was no roadmap for this. I just was like, we got to do this. I think design matters. I'm just going to keep going. You know, I remember talking in front of the 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 firm and coming up with these ideas, and somebody laughed at me. Or I also was making suggestions, and people were like, nobody's going to do that, Deanna. And I just like, you know, I'm tired of this. I started to sort of be like, wow, I got to get out of here. And I got a job working on a video game, actually, with a, a gentleman called Jonathan Blow. He came and said, "Hey, you want to? I need an architect for my video game." So I quit and started working in this video game that paid me enough that for part of my time I could start pursuing my ideas about designing for restorative justice and peacemaking. So I was like video gaming, trying to design for the peacemaking, trying to do that, and and it worked out. It worked out. So thank you to video games. If you follow your instincts, your heart, your gut. And、uh, let fear be in the sidecar. You'd be surprised where it can go. Much respect, appreciation, and gratitude to Deanna Van Buren. For all of you out there who are interested in keeping up with the work that she and her organization are doing, check out Designing Justice on Twitter. Big time thank you to the producers behind this interview, Asal Asanapur and Marisol Medina Cadena. Thank you to the editor Jessica Plachik and the engineer Rob Spate. Thank you a million times over to the engagement team, Kiana Mogadam, Lena Blanco, Sarah Pineda, and Vita Kong. None of this would be possible without the KQED execs who support this show: Eric Aguilar, David Marcus, and Holly Kernan. I'm your host Pendarvis Harshaw. Thank you for listening to Right Nowish. Right Nowish is a KQED production. Thank you for listening to this episode of Raw Material: Visions of Black Futurity. This podcast is a production of SFMOMA. This episode was written, produced, and sound designed by me, Babette Thomas, with production help from Maisa Plant Graham, Erica Gangsi, Santino Gonzalez, Liza Yeager, and Kevin Carr. The music you heard in this episode is from the illustrious Georgia Ann Muldrow, performing as GOT. Be sure to check out her music wherever you listen. Thank you so much to Pendarvis Harshaw and the team at Right Nowish for those incredible episodes of the podcast. If you're looking to hear more stories about the Bay right now, be sure to add Right Nowish to your queue wherever you listen, and be on the lookout for their mini series out now called Big Love, which centers love in all the ways it presents in our lives. We'll be back in two weeks with the next episode of Raw Material. I'll see you then.